This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, January the 27th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, you get to observe in real time what happens to a television host when they were at the gym at 3.30 in the morning. There's also going to be a news panel. Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig will be here for that. We are going to discuss the latest developments in the Rogers-Shaw merger. It offers an expense to the taxpayer. Offering, offering employees uh, more flexible statutory holidays. We'll take a deeper dive into that idea. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours, including Michael McNeely with a taste of the Sundance Film Festival and Karen McKay with an update on the Canada Reads shortlist. But we begin with the top story of the day. New survey data shows Canadians are very concerned about the state of the healthcare system. Don Kelly has the numbers. A survey of about 1,500 people by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies finds 86% are worried about the state of health care, compared to 94% of those surveyed in Atlantic Canada. 81% of those people living on the East Coast worry about the quality of care they'll get if they need to go to an emergency room, versus 67% of Canadians overall. Respondents were slightly more concerned about the state of health care if they'd received care in the past year. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. Ontario's top doctor offered an update on respiratory illnesses pressuring the health system. Dr. Kieran Moore says overall case numbers are declining, but there are still some areas of concern. COVID has been improving. Uh, we've been mainly in Ontario dealing with BQ1 and in its impact, but we're now today down to 99 people in the intensive care unit. We haven't had numbers like that since July uh, of 2022. Here are the national COVID numbers, 4,403 people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19. That's a slight decrease week over week, but in the last seven days, 225 people have died across Canada of COVID-19. Several provincial governments are looking to other provinces to fill nursing shortages. Ivy Lynn Borgo is the director of the Canadian Health Workforce Network. She says recruitment is only part of the solution. Focusing on one part of the, of the challenge of bringing more in, and we're not looking at all of those who are leaving. So it's kind of like a funnel. It's not a, a long-term strategy. President of the Canadian Nurses Association, Sylvain Brousseau, explains what good retention policies look like. It's not by going to poach nurses from one province to one province that you will solve the healthcare system crisis that we are going through right now. It's by giving them better working condition and better healthcare environment. I'm going to circle back to healthcare in a couple of minutes as part of the daily poll, but let's follow up on a few stories from earlier in the week, starting in the international relations and the war in Ukraine. Canada is contributing four battle tanks to the Ukrainian war effort. Chief of Defence Staff General Wayne Eyre laid out the logistics of getting the tanks overseas. We live in North America, and to get a 62-ton tank over there, it's going to take uh, take some doing. So over the last number of weeks, we've been planning, working behind the scenes to rapidly get this capability over there. Probably going to do it by our, with our C-17s. Uh, remember, we can only carry one tank per flight. Uh, so the effort to get those over is going to be something serious. Defence Minister Anita Anand says Canada is also providing trainers, spare parts, and ammunition. And Via Rail executives appeared before a parliamentary committee yesterday to discuss travel troubles over the holiday. Interim President Martin Landry pointed out the track conditions are often out of their control. We own and maintain less than 3% of the tracks on which we operate. Therefore, the majority of the infrastructure we operate on is owned by other rail companies, mostly by freight companies. Landry says the four-day logjam shows that Via has to review their protocols. That when passengers choose to travel with us, they call on VIA to get them safely to their destination. 
We have standard readiness plans as well as winter storm protocols. And it's obvious that we need to review these plans to enhance their effectiveness. Langzui believes it would be better if passenger rail had its own network of tracks. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Yesterday, we asked you, what makes for a good outdoor winter festival? 38% of you said food, 25% of you said entertainment, 25% of you said activities, and 12% of you said venue. We also had someone write in around the conversation that Alex Smythe and I had in regards to, uh, well, what kind of... Uh, uh, food would you eat as part of a sleep study because there's a food blog, uh, excuse me, a sleep blog in the U.S. paying people to uh, eat cheese before they go to bed. And we had uh, one contributor write in at feedback at ami.ca that they like to munch on some cashews at bedtime. So a little bit of a nutty response from uh, someone at feedback at ami.ca. It's a reminder that anything you hear on the show is up for grabs and uh, feel free to chime in when you feel like it. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Going back to the healthcare conversation, how should Canada go about bolstering its workforce of healthcare professionals? And if you have an idea, please share it in the comments. So I've got a couple options for you here increasing student enrollment, recruiting internationally, rehiring retirees, or other. Once again, I always put the caveat on these things that uh, all of the above is actually the solution. But I'm talking about a focus. If you were to, to develop a plan today for the future of our healthcare system and also its current needs, what would you do? And I will bang the table as I do over and over and over again, increasing its student enrollment. There are too many excellent students being excluded from med schools, being excluded from nursing schools, being excluded from the programs that we need to fill all kinds of positions across the country in various provinces. We need to make it easier for people to get a healthcare education, plain and simple. Now that's not going to solve the stress today, but come four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years down the line, that's how you build a much more robust system. Mike Ross, you're filling in for Alex Smythe today. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it, it very much is about opening up the halls of education. But I also think that uh, interprovincial licensing and the ability to move across uh, provincial borders and be able to practice uh, needs to be expanded in so many different disciplines, not just healthcare, but education is the same thing. If you move from Ontario to British Columbia, you've got to go through a whole series of tests and your qualifications uh, required in one province are not the same as the other. So in order to get your license, you sometimes have to go and get extra education. Sometimes you need more trainings. You certainly have to go through a relicensing uh, procedure. So I would like to see those, those barriers dropped between provinces because when we talk about healthcare in this country, uh, a bulk of that funding comes from our federal taxes. So why are the hiring uh, procedures and rules around those jobs not a federal responsibility or, or, or at least open from coast to coast to coast? I understand that healthcare itself, the delivery of health care is a provincial uh, jurisdiction, but we've, we've thrown money, you know, pile of money after pile of money at healthcare for decades and nothing changes. Nothing's gotten better. So clearly, it's not just about throwing a whole bunch more money at the problem or at the situation. It's really about getting in there and figuring out what is not working. And certainly, the labor aspect of this is a big one. Yeah, you can't deliver more healthcare without healthcare professionals, right? You can hire all the bureaucrats in the world and hire all the consultants in the world and frankly, even build all the hospitals and facilities in the world. But unless you have enough professionals, you're just moving chess pieces around on the chessboard. And that's something that Ivy Lynn Bourgo identified in the clip that I played for her there. You can't just be poaching people back and forth. You have to be retaining people and making it pleasant to work in these fields as well, which also means, you know, maybe not asking people to work 24-hour shifts over and over and over again when you know they're supposed to be caring for people well and, and we've heard you know how many excuse me how many governments have we heard over the past two and a half to three years talk about you know we're gonna we're building this new hospital and we're opening up you know 300 new beds in in, in this prop part of the province or that part of the province well that's great 
So I've got a place to lay down when I'm sick. But do you have someone to care for me yeah. while I'm there? Yeah, right? exactly. And and I and I also think that uh, there there you need to start looking also at, at long-term healthcare facilities as well. There has to be a way to to bring everything sort of under the same umbrella because we're they're dealing with similar issues and the fact that you had situations where you know people could are are forced sometimes in that private industry to work at one place and not be able to work somewhere else where the need might be uh, a little bit higher a little bit more um you know desperate uh, the, that lack of mobility of people, I think, is yeah. a huge obstacle in healthcare. Or there was the other side of it that we learned early on in the pandemic is that there were people working for such low wages at long-term care facilities. They were working for four, five, or six and bringing uh, certain viruses from one to yeah. another as well, which yep. ended up being a huge, huge identifiable problem. So, yeah, it's not just about uh, getting the numbers up. It's about making sure you're paying people properly so they're actually going to stay in these positions that are Absolutely. very stressful and incredibly necessary. But, uh, you know, some provincial governments Governments, uh, they'll they'll ignore that side of the conversation. They're happy to, or use the notwithstanding clause if the conversation gets too hot. Uh, Mike, we got to get out of here before I get either of us in trouble. Uh, so in the meantime, I will encourage you to vote on the poll on social media at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook, or you can chime in in the comments section as well. You can also send emails feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give a phone call one eight six six five zero nine. 4545-1866-509-4545. Let's go back to Mike. He has the National Weather Update. Thank you very much, Dave. We are kicking off your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it will be cloudy today and the temperature will fall to plus two. Halifax, a mix of sun and clouds. The temperature falling to minus five this afternoon. The wind chill will be minus seven. In Montreal, mainly sunny skies today, a high of minus 7, the wind chill near minus 16. In Ottawa, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of minus 5. The wind chill this morning, minus 19, that will go up to minus 8 this afternoon. Toronto is cloudy today with a high of 0 and a wind chill near minus 13. In Thunder Bay, snow, about 5 centimeters in total. Your high minus 7, the wind chill minus 12 this morning. That'll drop to minus 19 this afternoon. Out to Winnipeg, a mix of sun and clouds today. The temperature minus 19. The wind chill bringing a risk of frostbite today. Minus 23 this morning, minus 30 this afternoon. In Saskatoon, Mainly cloudy, the temperature minus 17, the wind chill minus 14 this morning, dropping to minus 26 this afternoon. In Calgary, flurries, minus 8 is your high, the wind chill minus 13. In Edmonton, flurries, minus 12 the high there, minus 18 is your wind chill factor. In Yellowknife, cloudy today with a high of minus 25. Really, really bad frostbite conditions, so be aware of that. The wind chill today, minus 43. In Vancouver, cloudy with a high of 7 degrees. And in Victoria, you've got a cloudy sky today with a high of 9 degrees. And that is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Mike, in real time, I realized what a poor job I was doing reading some feedback from yesterday's show from uh, Jason Weatherby. So I decided to pull up the email and read it properly. Jason emailed in at feedback at ami.ca about being paid to eat before bedtime. And he writes in, before bed, I routinely eat cashews, so I would jump at an opportunity to be paid to do so. All for the pursuit of science, of course, Jason. Thank you for chiming in at feedback at ami.ca. And I promise if you chime in at feedback at ami.ca, I will do a better job of reading it properly. Coming up next, the news panel kicks off. Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta stop by. We start in the world of business and discuss the latest news in the Rogers and Shaw merger. Looks like that deal's going to get done. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on Friday. It's time to assemble the weekly news panel. Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta are here. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Joita. Hello, Dave and Michelle. All right. Well, there we go. Hellos to everybody all around. Let's start in the world of business. The Federal Court of Appeal has upheld the competition tribunal's approval of the Rogers takeover of Shaw. The deal, in case you forgot, is worth $26 billion. The merger now only requires approval from Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada. A parliamentary committee met earlier this week to discuss the deal. Joita, this business story has taken many twists and turns over the last few years. Why? What do you want to revisit in this conversation? I think it's worth talking about it. It is one of those stories that impacts a number of Canadians, Rogers customers being amongst them, of course. But in general, it's part of a larger conversation about the state of telecom in this country. All of us likely pay cell phone bills that we perceive as being too high. There's been research to show that uh, Canadians pay amongst some of the highest cell phone bills in the world. And there was some concern that the Roger Shaw merger would only contribute to the problem because there would be fewer players in on the field. And so really, there are many layers to this story. Uh, there's the corporate side of this, but also the consumer interest side of this. So it would be really interesting to take this conversation apart in light of the fact, as you so astutely pointed out, that it has dragged on and on and gone through many twists and turns. Let's uh, bring in Michelle on this one, because certainly as this case was heard this week by a federal court, there were maybe some people who expressed a bit of surprise about the decision. I can't say that I was all that shocked. I thought the process made some sense. But Michelle, were you surprised at all by the decision? No, I, I really wasn't. Um, I More surprising to me, in fact, was the fact that the Competition Bureau actually did actively tried to block it, which is what led to this court case. Uh, the, the, the companies appealed that tribunal decision. That's what went before the courts this week. Um, throughout this whole thing, a uh, conversation editors were heard to have said would be something like, can the competition bureau do that? Well, we never really had a sense of the extent of their powers or, or their limits for that matter. And so when this court decision came back and, they, you know, they, they just tried to flex their muscles and the, the court decision comes back and it's a real shoot down of the Bureau's case. It's a very unequivocal win for Rogers. You know, they're using things like forays into fiction. Like it's really pretty stinging if you read the decision. Um, that was uh, an unequivocal slapdown of what any argument they tried to make. So I'm not really that surprised to see what happened. And now there are still some people that argue that perhaps it still could be blocked at the last minute by the industry minister of I'm thinking that's not going to happen. I think this deal will be closed by the end of the month, as they hope. Yeah, there was there is the expectation, or in writing, the bill is supposed the, not the bill. The merger is supposed to be done by January the 31st. So that is still the target here, and it looks like over the course of this past week, a lot of those hurdles have been overcome. But as you say, you never know if the ministry may try to get involved on this one. But once the federal court says unequivocally, hey we think this is going to be going through. And at, to a certain degree, when the Competition Bureau says, you know what, we're not going to appeal this decision either. We're not taking this any higher. It does imply that certain, the, certainly the regulatory side of this was sound. Joita, you sent us an article about some concerns being raised about preferential treatment. Before we bounce that mm. ball around the table, can you lay out what some of those concerns are? Yeah, it was Tech Savvy that suggested that uh, video Videotron was getting preferential treatment. And you'll have to bear with me because it's, it is a bit of a, a convoluted explanation and jump in if you think you can explain it better. But in order to ensure that the the that the merger between Rogers and Shaw went through, one of the things that was attempted and, and has been subsequently successful was to sell off Freedom Mobile, which was owned by uh, by Shaw. Shaw. Now, now, now Videotron brought, bought up Freedom Mobile and as a way to sweeten the pot, if you will, and to ensure again that um, this merger between Rogers and Shaw went through and that no one could say, oh, no, no, you're too big. There's not enough competition. Rogers turned around and offered Videotron very competitive rates compared to, uh, say, Tech Savvy, which being an independent operator wasn't getting the same deal. Uh, they, I believe, rely primarily on Bell, but also on Rogers for their infrastructure. So here you've got Videotron getting a bit of an advantage, all 
so that this deal, deal could go through. And that's where the preferential treatment aspect comes in, where Rogers is able to offer preferential treatment and treat Videotron very differently from, from tech savvy. And so it does highlight the issue of difficult for new entrants in the market. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing to look at because there is something of of an, oh, did I say it, an oligarchy when it comes to telecom in Canada and you don't really, I, I think the challenge is be facing any relatively new or a smaller entity trying to make an inroad are tremendous. Uh, so the way that I look at that is the tech savvy is probably a little bit ticked off. They uh, didn't, oh, get to, didn't, didn't get to buy into the cellular network. They've certainly made a dent in certain parts of the country in regards to uh, providing internet service to people, but they may have wanted in on some of the cellular network. And by the way, Videotron for sure has a stake in becoming more of a national cellular network as well by buying into that Freedom Mobile uh, side, of this, side of this equation. To me, it strikes me as more of, oh gosh, we got beat on a great business deal rather than this was preferential treatment. But Michelle, what do you make of the assertion the tech savvy is making? Yeah, I have to say, I would kind of agree with you on this one. Um, I, it's... Yeah, there's there's an element of cyber groups to this, I suspect, but it does it does raise also some interesting conversations. Let's do it outlined in terms of of competition and option. And I was really struck by one part of the court ruling this week that reminds me of that, and it was the fact that they're saying that they think, in their estimation, the competition will increase if this merger is allowed to go through because of Videotron's purchase of Freedom. Uh, that is a scenario that I don't have an interesting I, I, take. It's an interesting take for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's one that I can't say that I can easily picture, but. I I'm not well, I'm not a telecom reporter. Um, there are many, many better equipped people in this country to outline uh, why they would take that position. Uh, but it will be certainly interesting to see how this plays out if that in fact comes to pass because many people have been arguing, as you noted off the top, the very opposite. Yeah. Videotron, maybe people who have never lived in Quebec may not understand, Videotron is a gargantuan telecom company huge. in Quebec. Like it's a monster, monster, monster. And they've... It's pure Carpelado for those who don't know. Yeah. Like if that, if that name means anything to you, that should say it all. Yeah, the guy's <laughs> trying to buy an NHL team at the rate things are going. Uh, exactly. and, and they've been making some forays, especially into Eastern Ontario. Ontario in the last couple of years on the cellular side, onto some internet providing side, not so much on the cable side yet, but they are trying to emerge as more than just a regional power. So this for them is a huge part of their own business plan. I, I think the the notion of, of, of more national comp, uh, competition, I, like I said, I think that's a really interesting take from some analysts in the field. There could be something to that. I don't know how far Videotron wants to reach at this point in terms of away from their base. There could be some imperial overstretch going on there trying to bust into BC without building your way out there but but there's something there's definitely something to that uh Joita any thoughts on the way this might actually uh impact somebody's cell phone bill oh geez I don't know I think like as I said a few minutes ago it's uh, very clear that Canadians play some of the highest cell phone bills in the world I suspect that um this might result in those cell phone bills getting to be even higher yet if you take your earlier argument about this increasing national competition, uh, it might actually re result in a reduction of prices. It's really hard to say. I don't actually see this resulting in a, in a, a significant drop in the price of cell cellular service in Canada. So for now, I'm going to say it's probably going to stay the same or it's going to go up unless that particular theory about an increase in national competition, in fact, plays out. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to say it's uh, staying the same or going up. That's that's just the way that's just the way telecom bills go. But Michelle, <laughs> any thoughts on your end? <laughs> similar to you guys, I think they're likely going to stay similar or be adjusted in either direction and, and by a matter of a couple of bucks here and there, like nothing that's going to make a significant difference to people. That would so, be my guess. So both this topic and the next topic we're going to cover are dealing with telecom and internet access. And there's two different but similar questions that we're going to address in each of those segments. So let's start with this one in regards to a publicly owned telecom company. Is that something that could be conceivable as a public utility? And again, as a point of reference, there are provinces like Saskatchewan that do offer internet and telecom through a public utility. So there's, it's not as if this would be precedent shattering elsewhere in Canada for a company to do that. Michelle, any thoughts on the idea of internet as a public utility? I, I think it's a fascinating concept. I just don't see one that there is the political will to explore. Hmm. Given the, the the sheer amount of drama around this particular merger alone, uh, 
ramping up to a public utility or establishing one would be an even more convoluted process. And I kind of shudder to think what that bureaucratic process would look like at this point. So I, I just don't see it as being a high priority at the moment, but I don't think it would be ruled out necessarily. They're, they're, like you said, there's there's templates to follow even close to home. So I think it could be could be on the table in the future, but I certainly don't expect to see it anytime soon. There's a little bit more that should be mentioned here from the news front as well. Both the federal governments and several provincial governments are spending a lot of public money to create connectivity. Uh, there's a lot mm -hmm. of parts of the country that do not have connectivity. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw a couple places in Atlantic Canada announcing that a federal-provincial partnership was going to be spending a lot of money to try to connect places that are a bit off the grid in Atlantic Canada. The, the government of British Columbia has their own plan in place to try and get more remote and rural areas connected via internet. So certainly there are public dollars investing in some infrastructure here as to whether or not the delivery of that will be public is a bit of a different question. But Joita, what do you make of the prospect of a public utility in telecom? Well, if you're an optimist, then there's always a prospect. But realistically, and I have to agree with Michelle on this one, I don't see a lot of political will to get this done. Um, had you come to us about the news panel, about the... Uh, the daily poll question earlier, uh, I would have said that would have been the other big issue in healthcare. And likewise, uh, the lack of political will is really what's stymieing the development of a public utility. I know that when that Rogers outage happened last summer, there was a lot of clamor about a public utility and that SaskTel offered cheap and affordable and high quality uh, cell phone service. And maybe it was something that we should be talking about broadly, but that conversation has largely disappeared. So no, I don't see it happening anytime soon. But in addition to your point, Dave, about investments in uh, infrastructure, I think the other thing that the other way in which the public sector could get involved is by negotiating with telecom companies to provide packages for vulnerable people. So if your cell phone bill happens to be, I'm going to ballpark a number here, $100 a month, and your income happens to be $100,000 a, a, you know, a year, you probably don't care. But if you're someone on social assistance and you're paying $100 out of your $800 social assistance check on a cell phone bill, we can all agree that is unsustainable. And I know at least for internet, uh, there have been some packages put forward, for example, for Toronto community housing residents where you get subsidized internet. And maybe the public sector can get involved by negotiating some kind of a subsidized cellular phone package because it is really very essential now for people to have a cell phone in this day and age. I think you just stepped on the is internet a human right uh, that we were supposed to explore in the next topic. Oh, but sorry. I still thank you. It's okay, no, Joita. It's so okay. Much more to explore it's there. okay. <laughs> and speaking of coming up next, we're taking a closer look at an investigation by the National Post that shows that politicians were writing off and expensing their internet bills with taxpayer dollars. So where's the line on this one? We'll discuss. This is the now news panel on AMI. Welcome back to the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Let's get into the next topic. The National Post has been scrutinizing what politicians are writing off in their expense reports, specifically MPs charging the taxpayer to cover the cost of their home internet. 57 MPs across all parties expensed their home internet last summer. Summer, last summer is the important part of that sentence. And monthly bills ranged from $70 to $200. The grand total for the taxpayer, $16,000. Michelle, why'd this story jump out at you? I found myself reading the story and, and, and entering it with one set of thoughts. And by, you know, a few minutes after reading it, I was having a bit of a conversation with myself. And that to me is a bit of a litmus test for whether or not this would be a good panel topic. <laughs> Um, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of where appropriate uses of public money, which I know is another one that ends, tends to get our collective motor running. How dare us. you take away my $16 <laughs> glass uh, of orange juice? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I mean, I think everyone can agree that internet is a valid work expense. Even the CRA would back us on that. I'm sure all of us who filed taxes during the pandemic remember the, the different forms and provisions that were made uh, in order for us to claim some of those expenses. Um, 
We're also not talking about huge numbers here, and I wondered to what degree that would color the conversation. We're talking 57 out of 338 MPs, so not a huge number of them, claiming a, a number that, you know, well, a lot of money to an individual is a genuine drop in the bucket for a government. So I, I thought there was a lot to, to focus on there around, you know, appropriate uses of this, where the line exists, if there should be one, if there's, you know, double standards at play, uh, a few things to sink our teeth into. Where's the line is my favorite conversation in the whole world. That's where the fun stuff Don't is. Don't I know it. Um, Joita, <laughs> what do you think? Interesting tidbit or representative of a bigger deal? It could be a bit of both. I mean, as Michelle said, 57-odd MPs and a very small amount of money to the government. So in that sense, it's a bit gossipy slash tidbit-esque, but it does indicate a larger issue. It's interesting, you know, last segment we were talking about the high cost of cell phone bills, and of course, internet bill is not cheap either, especially if you want a good internet package. So it's always interesting when MPs find ways to insulate themselves from the problems of everyday Canadians. If, you know, if the government is picking up the tab, they're not really having to confront how expensive these things actually get. And there's always, you know, some hackles that go up when you have conversations about the expenditure of public money and how and what kind of thing, what sort of things uh, politicians are claiming as expenses. We've had some pretty high profile stories and scandals about this sort of thing. But I think it, it, it's an interesting one for a couple of reasons. As Michelle pointed out, working from home, you, the internet is a valid expense. No one's really squabbling about that. But I think the more interesting question then really becomes, well, if MPs get to be reimbursed, what about the average Joe or the average, you know, Michelle or Joita or Dave, if we're working from home, to what extent do our employers have an obligation to reimburse us? And I know there's a patchwork because this all happened so rapidly during the pandemic. They think some employers uh, managed to pivot maybe better than others. So there's a patchwork of uh, po workplace policies about uh reimbursing employees for internet so if you know if it's if it's something that mps are getting maybe it can spark off a broader national conversation about recognizing that work from home culture is uh here to stay and as part of that employees are using their own utilities internet being the one of them and maybe we should have a more long-standing conversation about how employers uh reimburse employees for their use of internet at home uh, Joita, you led me into this well because this particular tidbit does not fascinate me that much, but it does actually lead me into the bigger deal around whether it be politicians expensing things or whether it be the notion of business expenses more generally. I would make the argument that we've made it too easy for anybody to write off anything by simply incorporating themselves. <laughs> Meals and hotels and transportation and gas and clothes and internet and phones simply by being incorporated. And then they just say, pay me to this incorporation. And then they can write off all kinds of stuff. I'm, and believe me, I'm someone who's eaten many a hamburger that's been paid for <laughs> by somebody's lovely business account, by some of the biggest corporations in the world. And I always enjoy it. I always feel like I get one over, the, over them. So when we're talking about public money, because when we're talking about a write-off in this sense, it is all public money, whether it's a politician or the biggest corporation in the world. That is coming out of the tax base. I understand there are certain things that are genuinely a business expense, but I would argue that we need to look at the whole operation of writing things off, whether or not it's a politician using public money or whether or not it's a Fortune 500 company, because I would argue the whole system is only furthering inequality. Michelle, I may have stolen a bit of thunder there, but interesting tidbit no. or bigger deal? I, I'm kind of with you in that I, I think what what this raised for me, and I think you might have really zeroed in on the issue and helped focus it for me, was the double standard at play. Uh, we do seem to have different kinds of conversations around these issues where they're taking place in private corporations versus with public money. And, and that is understandable on some level, but also makes you wonder if that's really how it ought to be, which makes you question, does the system work the way it ought to? Um, I, I'm kind of with you in that I, I, I was going into this article thinking, I think a certain amount of a certain amount of fuss is being made over not that much, but is that even so? I mean, the fact is that it, the, the articles like this one and examinations like this one 
spark these kinds of conversations and they're important ones to have because there is definitely a lot of uh, fast and loose action on, on business expenses. Uh, I assume that's only gotten worse over the course of the pandemic. I'd love to see some CRA data on some of this. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that's not unique to to, to politicians or anyone else. I'm, I'm going to use some, some words that are probably a little outdated, but white collar versus blue collar. This is a perfect mm-hmm. example of where white yeah, collar workers totally. are put in a yeah. serious advantage over blue collar workers. Mm-hmm. Um, Simply, simply because of the structures that have been created by white-collar people via laws for hundreds of years, or at least 150 years in the case of Canada. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think this represents something bigger, but I think that it's easy to sort of frame it under the guise of politicians because taxpayers are always going to be cranky about politicians spending any kind of money. So, Joita, does the way we look at this have to shift or change simply because an elected official is involved? Um, kind of. I mean, it's it's true that uh, whenever, as I said before, whenever we talk about public, uh, uh, you know, people in public office, hackles do go up if they seem to be frittering tax dollars away. And there's a lot of um, a lot of you know bipartisan snapping and sniping. Oh, you know, look at those. You know, the people from one party will say, oh, look, you know, the people from the other party are wasting money, like it's going out of style. And you know, there's all of this political haggling and back and forth that happens. That's Par for the course. But I think if one were to step back and examine the conversation about public expenses in another way, uh, we know, for example, and it's not exactly MPs, um, but we know, for example, that judges and police officers get paid a really high salary. And part of the reason they do that is to insulate those individuals performing crucial public functions from bribery and corruption, right? So I think part of why it makes a little bit of sense, if I can sort of play devil's advocate here, to reimburse um, elected officials like an MP for home internet is because it does keep them hopefully impartial when you could have a scenario where they're, I don't know, paying through their nose. There are some people who were paying as much as $200 a month for internet. You could have a scenario, hypothetically speaking, where one of these telecom companies sidles up to the MP, makes a backroom deal and says, hey, you know, don't worry about the internet. I've got it. I've got you covered. I've got your employees covered. Everything's hunky-dory. Just uh, do you mind looking the other way when they pass this bill or make that resolution? <laughs> so, so there's that aspect of it to consider as well. Uh, but again, I think it is definitely indicative of a, of a larger problem. Um, and that's where the conversation really is here. I do enjoy a little bit of conspiracy corner there. I, I like that. I like that. I love idea. it. It's I a Friday love, morning. No, you I, know, get I love it. No, no, I'm, I'm into it. For, for considering some of the uh, conspiracies get shared on broadcast and podcast these days, that one's probably on the uh, smaller scale if we're really, if we're really getting down to it. <laughs> no, um, I, I wasn't talking about specifically a, a conspiracy. The, my point being that when we, when, when, politicians are reimbursed for things, the rationale behind it, and it's really not a conspiracy as such, the rationale behind it is just to prevent politicians from being susceptible to a vulnerable yeah. to No, 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 I'm not, accusing, I'm not accusing you of peddling conspiracy. <laughs> it's okay, Julian. I'm not, I'm not trying to get anybody in any trouble here. Um, you know what gets my hackles up, and I think it was sort of underreported, was the amount of money Canada spent to send a delegation over to the Queen's funeral. It was in the multiple six figures that we spent to send a delegation out there. To me, that's the kind of thing that gets my hackles up as a taxpayer. <laughs> Uh, for plane tickets that were costing tens of thousands of dollars because they were booked at the last minute to fly to London for the Queen's funeral. But that, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave that cross to bear uh, elsewhere. Uh, Michelle, let's uh, play a little game here. Reasonable expenses for a politician to write off. Oh, um, yeah. So, like, I, I honestly don't object to, to... Again, it's the double standard that gets me. Uh, I would think that things that would pass the smell test with the CRA would be fine for, for politicians to write off. I don't honestly have a problem with a lot of the writing off. I know, I know, I know. Leave me alone. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like that you're hiding behind institutions there. You're like, yeah, the CRA says it's fine. It's all good. No, like, honestly, like, I, I just, like, I, I don't, I, I don't get my hackles up when people write off internet. It is a valid business expense. Politicians need to be connected. The issue I you meant you stress the the summer aspect and that does raise some questions because the ledge was not sitting at that point, but there is still constituency work going on. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a huge problem. I really don't. So anything that would fall under the class of, of a typical business expense for the average Joe or Joita works for me. Um, I. Don't hire me as your enforcement guy. I'm not your guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to crunch those numbers either. Okay, what if I throw some specifics at you guys, as opposed to opening this generally, yeah, generally up? Hit me. Um, so, internet, I think we can all agree, it's fair, guys. Internet, mm-hmm. fair game. 
Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Joita consensus there. Internet. Yep, All good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What about the the transit from their riding to Ottawa? Reasonable. Well, that's fair. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, accommodations while they're living in Ottawa during session. Reasonable. For oh, sure. totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. With the caveat that people do sometimes abuse it, uh, and that is, so you have to judge that one on a case by case basis. Yeah, it's so true. People have, but people have baseline figures, right? They say, "Well, we'll cover you up to X amount if you choose to stay at, you know, the Marriott versus." some luxury thing that yeah, yeah. go nuts and they'll cover the Marriott. Cost. Oh, well, like, I, like, I, I like that the Marriott is the baseline here. I would send them to, I would send them to the business inn at the corner of Elgin. We're talking about McLaren. Ottawa here, guys. Come on. You know, they're not going to go for Oh, easy, easy. Oh. Over there. Low blow. Hey, business inn, Elgin and McLaren. It's great. Um, they don't sponsor the show, but they should. Um, uh, okay, here's one more for you. And I think this one might actually be a little bit controversial. Because okay. I would say we should not give them a wardrobe budget. They should have to buy suits or dresses on their own dime. What do you think, Joita? Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, no. I don't you see the point of given, a wardrobe budget. Given the salaries I'm, they're paid, yeah, they can cover their own clothes, I'd say. Yeah, you can buy your own suits. Uh, I say this is someone who has a wardrobe budget, but that's, you know, that's I don't <clears> use it. I haven't, I haven't used it in two years. You I have used a it in wardrobe three years. budget? I, yeah, I, hello. I, I haven't used hello, it, I haven't used it in three years. Joita, we got to unionize. Oh, good times. All right, um, let's go back to, to, to uh, the telecom side of this. I apologize. I've strayed away because I'm having too much fun this morning. So last segment, we batted around the idea of whether or not internet could be a public utility. The step further was internet as a human right. Juita, I think you kind of made your case, but I'll give you first word on this. Well, I was more talking about the uh, the telecom side of things. I think, you know, and yes, I think internet and cell phones are human, is would be considered human rights at this point. Um, a lot of people rely on it. I, I feel like I'm stating the obvious here. So yes, my short answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I use telecom and internet and cell phone like a little bit interchangeably. Interchangeably. I kind of feel like they're all, at this point, all sort of the same thing. It's all part of the connectivity. Michelle, is connectivity a human rights? Yes, I would think so. And, and I feel like the the public recognition of this is, is starting to shift in that direction. Joita talked off the top about all the various infrastructure announcements and partnerships between governments. I have to say that I've been seeing releases about trying to extend connectivity. They, I, these roll in weekly and I've been seeing them for years. So it makes me question exactly how much things have advanced down that road. But that does seem to be the, the consensus position is that in this day and age, these are fundamental things that everyone needs access to. So yeah, if that's not a human right, I don't know what is. I will uh, go for consensus there too. At this point, people <laughs> require the internet or telecom to uh, engage in society. It's just, it's part of the deal at this point. Um, try, try living off the grid for five days and see how that goes. Nope. Uh, okay, coming, <laughs> let's, let's put this topic aside. Coming up next, I want to contemplate something with you. The city of Winnipeg is considering making statutory holidays more flexible for cultural or religious reasons. I think it's a really interesting idea. I want to find out how Joita and Michelle feel about it. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic for you. The city of Winnipeg is considering making statutory, matching statutory holiday time with the cultural and religious priorities of its staff. City Council will consider asking the Manitoba government to change its employment standards code to allow employees to substitute existing statutory holidays for days that are most meaningful to them if council approves the motion. The city would also ask the province to consult the community on other ways the code could be more inclusive so guys i want to put the preface on this right from the top i think this is a really great idea i think it's a really interesting idea i do have some caveats which we'll get into but michelle what do you think of it i think this is very cool i think it's a it's a, I, i'm actually kind of surprised that no one thought of it first uh, not that i have so I shouldn't throw stones, but uh, I, I think it's a it's a very creative solution. I think it's it's an inclusive one. I like the fact that they're treating this as a fluid situation and a bit of a living document that they tend to revisit and, and keep working on this. Uh, but I think it's by far the most inclusive approach to this particular issue that I've yet heard about. As you think about Canada as a more of a tapestry and a growing tapestry and evolving tapestry, again, it makes a lot of sense to me. Joita, what do you think of the idea? I think, honestly, I think it's a silly idea. Okay. Um, it's a performative okay. gesture. 
it's a performative gesture that makes it look like you're doing something to be inclusive of quote unquote cultural minorities. It doesn't accomplish a thing. And the reason it doesn't accomplish a thing is because the only reason this has come up for the, the only reason this has come up at all is because there is a significant uh, number of people who now observe holidays that are not that are not Christian holidays, but those people are still in a minority in Canada. So even if you had a situation where let's say I'm Hindu and I take uh, Diwali off and I'm I have that day off and in in place of that I work on Christmas Day well I'm the only one working no one else is or just about nobody else is nothing else is open and then there are other wrinkles to consider for example if someone has a small child daycare is closed on Christmas Day so you're basically being penalized because you know you have a small child and now you're doing double duty trying to look at, look after your kid at home while also trying to work on a day when nobody else is working and none of the light none of the lights on are on anywhere else it is such a a, a poorly thought out idea uh, that I'm honestly amazed that more people are not skeptical of it and more people are not completely taken aback that in a country where we tout multiculturalism, this is our best attempt at a solution to address uh, the inequalities faced by non-Christians and people whose holidays are not statutory holidays. Joita, I'm going to argue with you a little bit here. You mentioned the possible case study of someone who has a small child, Christmas Day, there's no daycare. Well, no one's forcing them to switch out on the statutory holiday. This is by choice. Yeah, of course it's by choice. But then the, the choice is, you know, you either work on a day that's meaningful to you or you take the day off that is meaningful to you, thereby forcing you to take a statutory to work on a statutory holiday. Or so, you can yes, use a paid, or you can use a paid vacation day on the day that means something to you. If you have, you. if you have it, if you have, like a lot of people don't. City have employees have vacation. it, Joita. City employees yeah, have employees, it. Yeah, employees, yeah, employees have it, but you know they don't have. Like it depends on how much you have and what the, what other priorities you've got. So it's really not it's really not the best solution, honestly. And I I do have other thoughts on. I do have other thoughts on how one might actually address this in a meaningful way, but I think this approach, uh, the way they're going about it now, is 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 not the way to do it. Okay, we'll, we'll get to Joita Gupta Consulting in a second here. Uh, you do identify something that did catch my eye, and that's about the idea of possible negative or positive impact for public access to city services. Because I see this in two ways. I force myself into my own binary. I can see this as being a really useful way to ensure that city services would be available on, would be available more for people, that on a day that would be a statutory day off for some individuals, they'd be able to go do some of their business at City Hall uh, to a smaller scale. But as Joita rightly pointed out, there's the possibility that day may become the worst day of somebody's life as they're trying to deal with uh, Family Day at City Hall and 18,000 Dave Browns descend upon it being like, I gotta pay my parking ticket. So Joita is right to identify some absurdity to this. Michelle, what do you think about the possible positive or negative impact in terms of access to city services. Yeah, I, I had I had started the conversation thinking more like you, Dave, and that this might theoretically you know open up access a little bit in in by by virtue of having some services open on days when they might not be, giving people a chance to take advantage of some of that. But th there are definitely issues to 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 sort out. The daycare issue, Joita, is a really good one. Um, but I don't know. I, I still feel like this is something that. that the existing calendars to this date don't even acknowledge Jewish holidays. We are supposedly on the Judeo-Christian calendar, and we are so tilted, so skewed towards the Christian aspect of this in every aspect of society that I would be inclined to to give the city a bit of credit for, for trying to, to break that mold. Is it perfect out of the gate? No, it's not. But I do, th I do, I see it as a valid starting point. I, I also think maybe, so I talked about this a little bit off the air with our senior producer, Andrika Delanerol, yesterday, as we started hammering this thing around a little bit. And we did also come to a little bit of the conclusion that Joita came to. There are probably certain days that just aren't feasible to trade out. Christmas Day, January 1st, these may be days that are just too impossible to trade out. But then there are things like Family Day, or in Manitoba, I believe it's called Lue Real Day. Um, or there are things like the August long weekend, or there are yeah, things Victoria like Victoria Day. These things could be traded out. It, like, if I'm being honest, it would probably uh, result in people actually being able to make some choices here about what they do or don't want to celebrate, or kind of use a day whenever they might want it to be. It led me to the question of how open should this policy be? Can I trade Family Day for Super Bowl Monday? Does me work 
worshiping at the altar of football constitutes a cultural <laughs> priority for me. I mean, it shouldn't, but it does. <laughs> uh, but that's just that's just who I be. Uh, Michelle, I'm going to give you the openness question, and then we're going to open up the doors to Julia Gupta Consulting. <laughs> huh, okay. Well, I, no, I, I think there were. Uh, I, I don't think it should necessarily be a complete free for all. Uh, but then again, I'm buying into the premise of this idea. If you're coming at this from the position of questioning the whole thing on a fundamental way, uh, I'd be open to other ideas. But no, I, I wouldn't think Super Bowl Monday would necessarily count. I would <laughs> prefer to see. Some would argue there, with that. I mean, we could probably I'm get sure to I'm sure many would. I, yeah. Uh, we could get to a critical mass. Actually, one of the greatest injustices, not that's too far. One of the biggest annoyances <laughs> in my life is that Super Bowl, the Super Bowl got moved to a week later a couple of years ago when the NFL expanded their season. And what did Ontario and the rest of the provinces do? They moved their family day a week later. So it was not going to fall the day after the Super Bowl. The world is about to collapse in the most perfect Injustice. way that could ever existed. But uh, no, the Rise announces... Rise up, Dave Brown, yeah, the, yeah, that. Yeah, me and the football... <laughs> I would have figured our current premier in Ontario as a football guy would have been uh, wise enough to play to his base. Okay, we got two minutes on the clock, Juita. Let's fling open the doors. You think you have a better idea? Let's hear it. I've got two. One, just give people a couple of extra floater days that they can use for cultural Boom. holidays. Nailed um, it. That's a good one. Then the second one is just celebrate them all. Like maybe just have a few extra statutory holidays. Uh, you know, do Eid, uh, do Diwali, do the Lunar New Year, some of the Jewish holidays. We can all learn a little more tolerance and acceptance if we all get a, a time, a bit of time off to reflect on them. Now, you see, I am someone who's all about saying we could use more statutory holidays more broadly. I, I think that we should be averaging closer to one a month. That is not the average currently across the country now. I think that if we got 12 stat holidays a year, there are countries like Ireland that have like 15, like 15 oh, stat yeah. holidays a year, which is awesome. Tons. And there's also right? better paid vacation policy in Ireland, too. Um, but, it's you know, it's very wet. In India, we used to get five holidays for Diwali, five for Durga Puja. That was just like 10 wow. stat holidays wow. in one month. And if you want to talk about a tapestry, there's all kinds of people who'd be clamoring for different holidays uh, across India of, of a couple billion a couple billion people. Yeah, Juita, I think, I think you're right to identify that, saying maybe we pick a couple or some of the biggest holidays from individual mm -hmm. cultures, like Lunar New Year, like Eid, like Yom Kippur. It's like Take our pick and, and pick a couple of the other major cultural influences in the country and use the stat holidays. That's a fantastic idea. Michelle, what do you make of uh, the Druida Gupta consulting ideas? Quite a fan. I like that second one in particular. Yeah, okay, all right, yeah. boom, we have consensus. You know what? We reject the Winnipeg idea and we accept the Druida <laughs> idea. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, Joita, for bringing us around. <laughs> hey, Michelle, have yourself a great weekend. Thank you. Same to everyone else. That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, Joita, you enjoy your weekend as well. Thank you. That's Joita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. You can find Joita's podcast on your favorite podcasting platform as well as on YouTube. Coming up after the break, it's the Regional News Update and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.